Hope y'all are doing well. If you have your Bible, you can open up to Acts chapter 6. We are studying through the book of Acts. Um, The study through the book of Acts, we've called it Blueprint. You can see understanding God's design for the church. So uh, the Lord has called us to live out his mission. And so what we're doing is studying through the book of Acts and seeing continual examples of how the early church uh, fulfilled that calling and how we as a church can also do that. Um, So if you have a Bible, you can open up to Acts chapter 6. Last week, we were in the first half of Acts chapter 6, looking at the choosing of those that would serve the Hellenists and and making sure that they were uh, supplied with the daily food. And then this week, we're going to go to chapter 6, verse 8. So uh, I'm going to pray, and then we will jump into chapter 6. I'll do a little bit of a um, review, verses 1 through 7, so we can go into verses 8 through 15. So let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word that you've given to us. Uh, You are kind in giving it to us so that we can know you. We can see your beauty. We can understand who you are and what you've done for us. I pray that as we look at today's uh, text, that you would use it to strengthen our faith in you and help us understand the gospel better and realize what Christ has done for us on the cross, that it isn't just a message for those that that are not saved in order for them to get saved. While it is that, it's also a continual message for those that are believers to continually trust in, continually believe in uh, what you've done for us and that you have supplied us all we need in Christ and that we are forgiven and that we can live out sanctification, continually trusting in what you've done for us. Uh, Be with us now as we look at your word. I pray that you would help me speak truthfully and, and honestly and accurately and that all the things that would be helpful that I'd say and all the things that wouldn't be helpful that you'd keep me from those. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So last week we're in chapter six, verse one through seven. And just a little bit of a, a recap. If you look at verse one, you can see that the ministry is going well, that many people are coming to know Christ. As it says, the disciples were increasing in number. So lots of people were getting saved. And so this was a busy time for the apostles in ministry. It wasn't a, a lazy, nothing's really happening. Let's go do other things kind of stuff. We don't have to worry about the preaching and prayer. Very busy and they needed to stay focused on preaching and prayer uh, so that they could do that job well so that that those who were being saved uh, could grow in their faith and they could continually reach more that could also get saved. Very busy time. And as this time of, of business is happening, uh, there's, uh, as it says uh, in verse one and two, a, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. We know in Acts chapter two and Acts chapter four that it says all those who were believers had all things in common and they were selling their possessions in order to meet the needs of everybody. So as believers, they said, we want you to eat just like we want to eat ourselves. And so in order for you to eat, we're willing to take our own stuff and sell our stuff to have money so that everybody in the community can have food. They, they took it upon themselves as a community of believers to think about uh, living in community in that way. And whenever that was happening, they were distributing food to all the widows, those that were, those that were Jewish and those that were Greek-speaking Jews. <coughs> and as they were doing that, the Greek-speaking Jews were being neglected. And so... Uh, 
this complaint arose and they came to the, to the apostles and they said, listen, the Greek-speaking widows are being neglected. We need to do something. And so in that moment, the apostles were tempted to say, oh, we can do that. And instead of preaching and prayer, they could go over to do this side of ministry, the social ministry and making sure that everybody was being, uh, their, their needs, needs were being met. But they said, it's not right for us to give up our calling, preaching and prayer, in order to do that particular calling. Both are awesome. Both are important. Neither one's more important than the other, but the Lord has called us to this. So you who are, are, are Christians, pick out from yourselves seven men that are, um, as it says in verses three, uh, seven men full of, full of good repute, full of the Holy Spirit wisdom that we're going to point to this duty. So they pick uh, seven men, as we saw in verse five, these particular five, seven men that they picked in verse five are all Greek speaking Jews. So they picked people from the minority to be able to serve the minority. And we saw even last week, usually even for us as an application for us, some of the, the, the long-term questions that we need to answer are going to come from the leadership from the minority. We need to be open and, and uh, aware that we don't have the answers that the minority, whatever minority in our church, it's not just racially driven. It can be uh, um, children or single college uh, students or whatever. I mean, it, it, there's lots of quote unquote minorities and the answers lie in them. So we need for you to step up and, and provide and, and jump in and be a part of uh, helping us answer the coming questions as part of the church. So as that's happening, they, <clears throat> they pick those seven men, they set them before the apostles, they pray for them. And now both ministries of preaching and prayer for the apostles and the social administration of, <coughs> excuse me, of these first servants are, are able to make sure both are happening. And when that happens, verse seven is the result. The Lord blesses it. And then it says, and the word of God continue to increase and the number of disciples continue to multiply in Jerusalem and even to make things even more incredible and a God doing a, and God doing a God thing. And the previous things that used to happen were the priests, as we saw in Acts chapter four, that were actually persecuting them and trying to, uh, keep them from being on ministry. God does something amazing. And it says, and even a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. And God's saying, you were faithful to stay in your callings. You were faithful to call on me and seek my, 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 my uh, thoughts in this. And they said, we can't, you were faithful to stay in your calling and, and point these. And I'm going to take care of a problem that was bothering you before. And even some of the priests are going to get saved. And now, uh, as we see in, in chapter six, verses one through seven, as I said, they picked seven men to do this. One of the men, the very first one, uh, that was listed was Stephen. And he's in verse five, they said, pick from yourselves. Uh, we're going to devote ourselves to ministry in the word. Verse five, it says, and what they said, please the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. And you can see the rest of the list. So as we go into eight through 15, it's going to narrow in on Stephen compared to the other six. So the, those, those other six, while they might be mentioned later and some will not be mentioned at all, the rest of the book of Acts, Stephen is going to mention in great detail. So as Stephen, though his life uh, is, is short-lived in, in terms of uh, being mentioned in the narrative of the Bible, Acts chapter six, Acts chapter seven, he is a massive figure in the book of, the, in, in the book of Acts and in the entire Bible. So in, starting at verse eight, we're gonna see some more things about Stephen. So what we're gonna do then is for the rest of j chapter six, we're just gonna look at chapter six today, look at some things about Stephen uh, and then I'll, I'll talk to you about how it's gonna look. So let's read chapter eight through 15. I'm sorry, verse eight through 15 in chapter six. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians and the Alexandrians and those of Cilicia and Asia rose up and disputed with Stephen. 
but they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Then they secretly instigated men who said, we have heard him speaking blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. Incidentally, in verse 12, the council, this is the exact council that was uh, the council that, that gave the wrong, uh, the wrong statement or the wrong <clears throat> judgment against Jesus, the exact same one. And it says, and they set up false witnesses who said, this man never ceases to speak words against the holy place and the law. You're gonna see here a lot of similarities between Stephen and this false accusation and false trial he's gonna have to go through and eventually how he'll be, he'll be or false accusations that are put against him and even Jesus. There's a lot of similarities. Verse 13, and they set up false witnesses uh, who said this man never ceases to speak words against the law and the holy place. For we have heard him say that Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. That, that's, that's, uh, that's truth-ish. It's truthy. <laughs> it's close-ish. It's, it's deceiving though. It's deceitful the way they're saying it. We'll, we'll talk about how it, what they're doing is really kind of deceitful. Although it's, it's, it's accurately close in language, it's deceitful. Uh, and then it says, And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. So uh, that's what's going on here. And so what we're doing, I'm going to break some rules. In, in, in seminary, they tell you, whenever you're preaching a sermon, don't do like a study of a person. Hey, look at this guy, and he's awesome. And he, look at these things about him. So be like this guy, unless the guy's Jesus. You shouldn't do that because you're pointing him to, you know, a fallen person. So I'm going to break that rule. Uh, but I have a little twist here at the end that's going to that's gonna make it so that um, it's still about Jesus. Uh, so anyway, uh, verses eight through 15 is where we are. Actually, I'm going to jump up to verse five. And what we're going to see today as we're looking at this is six key aspects of Stephen's character. So there's some things about Stephen I want us to see. And here's why we're doing this. Not so that we can say, oh, Stephen's awesome. He's like, just like Jesus, not like that at all. Um, but instead, as we see some of the characteristics or some of the aspects of Stephen's character, um, and we see these six things, then we all should stop and say, do I see these things in my own life? Are these six specific things also present in my life? As Stephen is a follower of Jesus who loves Jesus, wants to serve Jesus, and we see how he does that. Am I also someone who loves Jesus, wants to serve Jesus with all of my life and live a life of worship? Do I have these six things uh, present in my life? So, um, the way we're going to do that, we're actually going to jump back up to verse 5 because there's two things in verse 5 that describe Stephen's character and then we'll jump down to verse 8. So in verse 5, <coughs> after they had chosen the seven men and said what they pleased, chose the whole gathering and they chose and then he gives these, he gives Stephen some descriptions. The other guys, it just gives their name, but Stephen, it says, Stephen, a man full of faith and full of the Holy Spirit. So first, I want to talk about his name, Stephen. Stephen means a crown or a garland. And so this is like a reward or a crown of glory, even back then in their, in their uh, Olympics, if you will, as they were doing, it's, it's kind of like representative of you, you get this because of your victory. Uh, maybe you're watching the Olympics. I haven't watched one thing, uh, but it's the same kind of thing now we do with the medals. Uh, they, they used to just do first place and now we do first, second, third place. They started that, I think in 1894 so that they could give out more medals. Um, your knowledge for the day. So anyway, uh, so the word Stephen means crown or garling. It's like a, uh, an award given to somebody for victory. So in a lot of ways, Stephen lives up to this name that he's given. Uh, Kent Hughes said, Stephen's example shows us how he lived, uh, shows us how to live and shows us how to die. 
Never do we see the meaning of someone's name and worth of a life more clearly or more poignantly than in the final moments of this faithful Christian's life on earth. So he does, as the very first martyr for the Christian faith, earn a crown or a garland as he gives his own life um, for, for, for his faith. Derek Thomas, also speaking of, of Stephen, says, There was a winsomeness about Stephen, especially in his forthright and courageous defense of the gospel, as he has in chapter 6 and verse 7. Stephen was a man that spent time in the presence of God. And so we already can get some glimpses on the kind of man he was. First, it says in, ver- in fa- verse 5 that Stephen was a man full of faith. So the first aspect is, right here, verse 5, he was a man full of faith. And I want us to think of Stephen being a man full of faith in kind of two ways. One is the obvious one that you would think. We're going to see he's in the midst of some trials, some persecution. And in those trials, he had present trust in God. Whatever obstacles or persecutions are happening around him in those particular moments that he's facing, he was not afraid of his persecutors. He didn't shrink back from the fight. He didn't soften the gospel message as we're going to see next week when we get to verse uh, chapter 7. He had full faith in God in the midst of his trial, in the midst of his difficulty, in the midst of persecution. So all of us, in the midst of whether it's persecution or just difficulty in life, something's happened that's unexpected in our life and we're, we're struggling in the midst of this difficulty. Like Stephen, we should also be full of faith, 100% trust in God and who he is and who he said he is, that he will oversee us, he does love us, and he will see us through it. That's one sense that we mean by full of faith. But we also mean a second sense when we say full of faith in that he was full of faith in God for his salvation. So not just one who would persevere him through persecution or trials or obstacles or difficulties, but also that he has full faith in God for his salvation. Now, every person in order to become a Christian must trust or believe or have faith in Christ. You must put your faith in Christ. Uh, so <clears throat> we don't mean that believing or f- having faith means that you believe that God exists or you're really, you know, you're really sure that he's there. That's not what we mean. So in order to be a Christian, you're saying, I have present continual trust that the death that I should get for my sin was instead not put on me, but put on Jesus at the cross. And likewise, his complete, perfect, holy life is therefore imputed to me. And so he gets the death, he gets the shame, all that, that I deserve, he takes that on. And I get, as Martin Luther calls the great exchange, all his righteousness, all his perfections, all his holiness. And I am presently trusting, I'm full of faith in that transaction. And that's the only way that I can receive eternal life is by that. So when we say faith in God, we don't mean that God exists. And so since I believe he's there and I believe in the historical uh, facts that there's a man named Jesus that died, I'm saved. While it begins there, it's not just mere knowledge or assent to the truthfulness of history or doctrines that saves us. It's trusting presently in the death of Christ for us and repenting of our sin and saying, my only hope is you and I'm trusting that your death should have been mine and I'm trusting that your righteousness has been given to me. That's how I have full faith in God for my salvation. I'm not earning it. There's nothing I can do to earn it. Instead, I trust God that he died for me. So Stephen also has this. And so um, faith, when we say faith here, the 
biblical way that we should understand faith is assurance. That's, that's how Hebrews 11.1, 1, whenever it talks about faith, it says, it doesn't say that, that faith is, I'm really hoping something's going to happen, but I'm not sure. Maybe it will. That's not faith. As it says, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for. So when we talk about faith, this isn't some blind leap, some shot in the dark hope that we're going to be saved if we trust in Jesus, but I don't know. It's absolute assurance in faith. Derek Thomas says, faith is not some vague or, and it's not uncertain in itself. It is our empty hand reaching force to grasp the hand of the Savior that's offered to us in our plight and misery. That means in our sinful state. And I add, and who am I to add to Derek Thomas, but I just want to add one little parenthetical statement. It's not hoping as we reach out our, our hand that one day he'll be there and take our hand and we'll ride his coattails up to glory or something like that. No, it's instead that when we offer our, hand, our empty hand out to him, that he does take our hand and that he absolutely is upholding us from now until eternity. It's continual assurance that his hand did take our hand, if you will, in our misery our, our plight and misery and our sinful state. Faith is assurance. That's what the word means. It means assurance. So when we think if our, our faith is small, if we think our faith is weak, because he is full of faith. Well, that's not me. My faith is small or my faith is wavering or we think to ourselves, I'll never be a person full of faith. The truth is that faith means assurance. So if we think that our faith is small, if we think that our faith is wavering, we should note that it's not uh, faith in and of itself. It's our experience of our faith that's being shaken. It's our experience of our faith that's being shaken. Derek Thomas says, it's not faith itself that's uncertain. It's the experience of faith that's uncertain. Westminster Confession says it like this. I think this, while this is wordy, I think it's the helpful way to think about it. True believers have assurance of their salvation. While it may be shaken, diminished, intermittent by negligence of persevering or falling into some special sin right away and it wounds your conscience and it grieves the spirit or by sudden and vehement temptation. And when those things happen, whether I am, if I am being negligent in preserving my faith, I'm not actively pursuing Jesus in my life, not as a way to be saved, but because I'm saved, I'm not doing that. Or if I'm giving myself over into sin or all of a sudden vehement and sudden temptations are coming my way, those three things are happening. Then the experience of my faith is that I feel like there's a sudden withdrawal of God's light and his countenance. And so that I'm suffering and I'm walking in darkness and I have no light and I'm utterly destitute. But the truth is that the seed of God, his life of faith, I'm still reading the Westminster Confession. I'm just making it easier to understand. The seed of God, the light of faith, the love of Christ, the sincerity of heart, the duty, the conscience of my duty, all those things, the operation of the spirit um, are still actually present. And in due time, the Lord will revive those things that even though I might be in utter despair. And so the reason that he does revive us in our utter despair or if we have given ourselves over to negligence of persevering in the faith or given ourselves over to special sin or we are suddenly moved by vehement and sudden temptation. The reason why our experience is shaken in those things is because we have 
moved away in our minds and hearts from persevering in full faith. We, our, our experience of our faith is being shaken. But the truth is that the Lord is still there upholding us. So you don't have to wonder like, well, I wonder if I've really blown it this time. The Lord will in due time revive, if you will, as he says, and bring us back to his countenance. And it wasn't because you all of a sudden woke up and really worked hard to make it happen. It's because all the time, whether you knew it or not, although you might have tried to withdraw yourself from the Lord, he was always there upholding you, keeping you in the faith. So your salvation has nothing to do with your ability to maintain it. It has all, while I will say, you have to maintain your salvation in a sense. Like you, you can't just say, well, if that's the case, then, you know, do whatever I want. All the while, even in our times of, of moving away, the truth is your salvation has always been dependent upon God and him holding you. If it's not on that and anything else, then we don't have salvation. If it's dependent upon us, we're done. We are fickle people. We will murmur at anything. But the Lord is good and gracious and loves us far more than we could ever conceive or imagine. And he is upholding us. Stephen was a man full of faith. One could argue that he was not negligent in his walk with Jesus. That he did not give himself over to sin too easily. He was full of faith. So, how are you doing? Are you one full of faith? Full of faith in the sense that you're trusting God presently in the midst of persecution or difficulties or difficult times and trusting God full of faith that he is the one that upholds me in my salvation and he alone. And so I put all my trust in him. How are you doing? The second thing is this, that he was someone full of the Holy Spirit. Verse five, full of faith and a man full of the Holy Spirit. Now, <clears throat> this one can be tricky because every person at faith is indwelt with the Holy Spirit. There is no instance of anybody alive right now who's a Christian who has put their faith in Jesus that doesn't have the Holy Spirit. We're all um, indwelt by the Holy Spirit. And so it can be tricky for us to think, well, if I have the Holy Spirit, then I have the Holy Spirit. I mean, he's God. So how do I become more full? And while we've talked about this in other ways, and I think accurately, we've talked about it from Ephesians 3, that as it says in Ephesians Five, it tells us to be filled with the Holy Spirit. But Ephesians 3, it says we can be filled with all the knowledge of the fullness of God by knowing Christ's love for us. So one way that we can be filled with the Holy Spirit is delving into the deep ocean of love that Christ has for us. And as we dive into that, we are filled. As we understand this vast, amazing, never-ending, always-there love for us that he has for us, then it helps us be filled with the Holy Spirit. But I want to look at it a different way also. Donald McLeod says that being filled with the Holy Spirit is not a description necessarily of something happened instantaneous and momentary, but instead being filled with the Holy Spirit is describing an abiding condition. It's describing an abiding condition. This is how he writes it. Um, he writes, the Lord, and that's Jesus, in Matthew chapter 7, in his Sermon on the Mount, um, says, ask and it shall be given to you, 
and you shall find. Knock, and it shall be opened unto you. These words are not addressed to unconverted people. In the original setting, they have nothing to do with a man seeking Christ for the first time. They have to do with established Christians seeking the Holy Spirit. As it continually writes in Matthew 7, it says, If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your own children, how much more does your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to them who ask? So, these people were already saved. They were already Christians, and they needed to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And then he writes this. They already had the Spirit, yet... They were to ask for the Holy Spirit. That's curious language. You already have the Holy Spirit. Ask for the Holy Spirit. What? This is what he says. They were to seek him. They were to do so with all the earnest and inopportunity of a child seeking food. The Holy Spirit is not something God's children can do without. He's indispensable. Nor is he something they can store up. They need more and more. They need again and again. And the only way that they can ensure, they can ensure this is that they, are, that they are always full of the Holy Spirit is that they're always asking. As it says in Matthew 7, ask and it shall be given to you. Seek and you shall find. Knock and it shall be opened to you. If you then being evil know how to give gifts to your own children as fathers, how much more does your heavenly father give you the Holy Spirit to them who ask? And this is in the context of believers. So, the application for us then, like Stephen, who was a man who was constantly abiding in the Spirit and constantly asking for a filling of the Spirit, how are you doing? Are you someone who also is full of the Spirit, constantly abiding in the Lord, and constantly asking to be filled with the Spirit so that you can live a life that glorifies Christ? Or is it something that you really think of? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, I'm supposed to Ask for the Holy Spirit to be full. Man, I haven't done that in like three years. wonder if I'm still full. No. You have the Holy Spirit, but we need to continually be filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, I want to be careful here because it can sound like automatically that I'm saying something like, so in order to be saved, in order to really be a right Christian, in order to really have a right staying with God, if you're not doing these characteristics, then you're not a Christian. And I'm not saying that. I'm saying... Because of the gospel, because of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, you are 100% right now with God. You have a full right standing. And now because of that, you are completely free to live out these things with no encumbrances whatsoever. You can have a life that's dominated by being full of faith, dominated by, by being full of Holy Spirit and, and the rest that we're going to go over. Next one. You skip down to verse 8. Stephen was also, as it says in verse 8, full of grace. Uh, I named, and I'll study in Greek in, in, in seminary, and I named one of my daughters Charis. Charis is the Greek word for grace. Actually, it's pronounced charis, but she won't let me call her that anymore. Um, but uh, it means grace. And so Stephen is full of grace. And so what do we mean here when we say full of grace? While it certainly means that um, he had received a fullness of grace from Jesus for the forgiveness of his sins. So it does mean like he is full of grace and that he's received a lot of grace from God for the forgiveness of his sins. Um, immeasurable. There's also more to it. In the first century, grace, whenever you could actually describe, in the first century, you describe a way a woman would speak to people, um, not in a negative sense, but actually in a positive sense, uh, her, the way she... Her char the charm of a woman and the speech that she would use, um, 
you would use the word grace. You would use the word charis or charis, if you will. It described her beauty and her elegance and her loveliness in her speech, the way that she actually cared for people. In a positive sense, not in a manipulative sense like, you know, we would think. So what we mean here when we say Stephen is full of grace, this was actually seen in the way, not just the grace that he had received, but in the grace that he spoke with to people. He was full of grace with the way he, dealt, he dwelt with people. Now, of all of these, I think this is the one I, I struggle with the most. I want to be a man based on the amount, the amount of grace that the Lord has given me, extend that same kind of grace. But a lot of times I find myself falling far short of this. But Stephen was a man full of grace. The way that he spoke to others was um, so kind, as it says, so beautiful, so elegant and so lovely. He was full of grace when he spoke to people. He was kind-hearted towards them. Do you do this? Are you full of grace to others? Because of Jesus, you are free now to live this. You are free to be full of grace towards others. Based on the grace upon grace upon grace upon grace that we all have received from Jesus for our sins, we are now free to be full of grace towards others. Next one. He was also, in verse 8, full of grace and power. He was full of power. This doesn't mean like he was Samson. Doesn't mean that he could bench 350. That's not what it means. There's another way to understand full of power. He might have been a small little fella. Um, but the way that we understand it is right there in the text. Full of grace, full of power. And how can we understand being full of power? Read the first. It says, and doing great wonders and signs among the people. So the description of Stephen being full of power was that he was the kind of guy that was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Now, if you are mega astute, which you all are, you're seeing that and you're thinking, what? Is that right? Wait a second. I thought it was just the apostles that did the great signs and wonders, like Peter in Acts 3, and as we see throughout the book of Acts, like the designated 12 were the ones who got to do great signs and wonders. Who's this table waiter, Stephen, doing signs and wonders? That's not what he's supposed to do. He's a table waiter, which is why I said last week, I don't think while there's principles you can pull from Acts 6 and setting up a deacon ministry, I don't think it's the principal text. I don't think that's what Luke was writing for when he's writing, like, this is how you should set up your deacon ministry. See, Acts 6, I think 1 Timothy 3 is better than that because our prime time, like, number one example, Stephen is doing apostle work by doing signs and wonders. And Acts chapter, in verse 10, he's confounding people with his wisdom because he teaches so amazing. And chapter 7, he's preaching a sermon. He's the first, he's the first martyr. Like he's, he preaches such an amazing sermon that they want to kill him for it. Those are things that apostle elders do, preaching sermons, doing signs and wonders. So Stephen, I think, is a special case here. Uh, and it isn't necessarily a bench text for diaconate ministry as much as it is a, 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 a text in the church that shows us there were several things trying to keep them from being on mission. In Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 7, they stayed on mission by setting up a service ministry. And Stephen, out of those seven men that led that, was, was a man that lived out the second greatest commandment. He knew how to love his neighbor as, as, as himself. And here, he's doing that. And so when we see he was full of power, he's doing great signs and wonders. And so, 
There's a sense in which he's an apostle. He's performing signs and wonders like Peter, etc. But really, it's simple. I think the best way to take this full of power and import it to our an, an application for us, because he's full of power, what is he doing? He's doing signs and wonders. There's people that need to be healed that have physical present-day ailments, and they're being healed of those. And he's also part of taking the food and making sure that people... He's meeting everyday needs, physical needs of people. That's what he's doing. When we see full of power, present day translation for us is he's doing, he's loving his neighbor as himself. He's meeting their present physical day needs. He is, in all sense and ways, to say he's actively living out Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. This is what it says. So in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1 through 9, it talks about salvation and how it happens. And then verse 10 says, because salvation has happened, verse 10, therefore, or or for we are are his workmanship. God has worked on us. Now he's got work for us to do. In verse 10, we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. So we're supposed to do this full of power good works. We're creating Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. In other words, God has predestined you to do all these certain good works and he's set them out there before you and you should walk in those good works and accomplish those things in life. He's literally predestined good work. You don't like that, that term maybe, prepared beforehand. That's what it says, prepared beforehand, predestined, prepared. They sound the same to me. They're like, they have the same meaning. So if you don't like predestined, we'll just say prepared beforehand. God has prepared beforehand good works that you should do. So here, I mean, this is a big question. Full of power, that's what it means describing. Basically, that means he did good works. Are you? The Lord has prepared beforehand good works for you to do, for me to do. Are we doing them? Are we thinking every day? God has prepared good works for me to do today. Am I going to do them? Or am I going to live for myself and lazily and not even think about that and do whatever I want today? The Lord has, we're free to be full of power. We're free now to live and perform good works. We're not doing good works in order to have a right standing with God. You already have a right standing with God because of Jesus. And so now you're free to walk in these good works that he's already predestined you to walk in, just walk in them and do them. Fourth description or aspect of Jesus, or Stephen's character is, is that he was <coughs> full of power. Are we then also walking in the good deeds prepared before him by God for us to do. Next one. Oh, I lost my place. Here we go. All right, so here's what happens. He's full of grace. He's full of power. He's doing great wonders and signs among the people. Then, verse 9, some of those who belong to the synagogue of the freedmen. The freedmen were likely former slaves or prisoners. One of the two. They were, they were somehow not free, <laughs> and now they were free. So they were either slaves or prisoners, and they, were, they all had Hellenistic origins. So they, they were Greek-speaking in some sense. Does that sound familiar like somebody we know? That sounds like Stephen. Stephen was also Hellenistic in his origins, if you will. Well, how about that? Stephen, because he understands the origins of, and, and, and background and culture and religion of the Hellenists, he's going to the people that are Hellenists, in order to try to persuade them. Watch, verse 9. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, the Cyrenians and Alexandrians, and of those in Cilician Asia, rose up 
and disputed with Stephen. Now, in order for them to dispute with Stephen, he has to actually be present with them. They won't dispute with him if he's not there. What's he doing? Stephen is going over to the synagogue of the freedmen. There were up to maybe five different synagogues, some commentaries would say. He went to the synagogue of the freedmen, the Hellenists, and because this is the culture in which he knew. And while he's there, if a dispute arises, that means before the dispute, there was an engagement of some way of Stephen with arguments, not in a pejorative sense arguments, but in a winsome, like, I want to win you over to Jesus. Let's have a conversation type of arguments. And let's talk about Jesus and the gospel and who he is and what he said, what he, what he did and who he says he is and if the truthfulness of that. And they, there was some kind of dispute that rose up against him. So these people are not Christians. They don't believe in Jesus. And he is going over there to try to win them to Jesus and a dispute arises. So while we see dispute with Stephen there in verse uh, 9, we have to realize the origin of the dispute is because Stephen is wanting to live on mission. Stephen is wanting to see people meet Jesus, and he's going to the people he's familiar with because he knows them. He knows their culture. He knows their religion, and he loves them, and he cares for them, and he wants them to see and know Jesus. So the fifth aspect of the character of Stephen is that he was engaged in mission. He's full of power, full of grace, etc., but he's also engaged in mission. He's going over to the freedmen synagogues to talk to them about Jesus. He's engaged in the mission. He's reaching people just like him. How are you doing at being engaged in the mission? Now, we are called to go to the ends of the earth. We are called to go to the people that look nothing like us, don't have the same culture as us, don't speak the same language as us, etc. All Christians are called to go to the ends of the earth. But while we're called to that, we're also called to Jerusalem, to people that do understand our culture, that we understand their culture, we understand their upbringing, just like Stephen here. He's going to the people that he does understand to winsomely win them over. You have people all around you right now that you have lots of things in common with that you could talk to, I think, very coherently with about Jesus because you understand them. You live in the same culture as them, you speak the same language, and you might even understand their religious background better than somebody who came from nowhere, like in a complete different culture, not nowhere, a different place. So are you engaged in the mission? Not just to the nations, but in your Jerusalem. He was engaged in the mission. Every day he sought after to win people to Christ. Now, when he does this, he's accused falsely of three things. You can see those three things here in the text uh, as we go from verses 11 to 14. So he's, they have a dispute. We're going to come back to verse 10, but it says they couldn't withstand the wisdom of the spirit which he was speaking. He was, he was the bomb. Anyway, verse 11. And when they secretly instigated men, and then they secretly instigated men who said, um, false charge number one against Stephen, right here. We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. False charge number one. Keep going. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes and they came upon him and seized him and brought him to the, before the council. As I said, this is the same court that convicted Jesus. Uh, and they set up false witnesses who said, here comes false accusation number two. This man never ceases to speak words against the holy place and the law. That's the temple or the synagogue. So number one, he speaks blasphemous words against Moses and God. Number two, he speaks blasphemy against the temple and the law. Um, by the way, this is just the irony of it all. They know like the law says not lie. <laughs> and so while they're saying he doesn't uphold the law, 
they're not upholding the law by lying, by saying he doesn't uphold the law. Y'all follow that? They're breaking the law. It's just amazing. Like, they're so hypocritical. They're lying, saying that he's lying. Anyway, uh, verse 14. So we're going to see the first blasphemy was against Moses and God. The second blasphemy that they charge him, false blasphemy, is against the temple and the law. The third one, in verse 14, for we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy the place, and here it is, change the customs. It's, it's truthy. It's, it's truthish. It's, it sounds okay. That's kind of what he said. It's very deceiving the way they, they're trying to present it. He's going to destroy this place. He, he said Jesus is going to destroy the temple. Jesus said he's going to destroy the temple. Is that what he meant? No. It's not what he meant. They said Jesus is going to change the customs. That's the third incorrect accusation. He's going to change all the traditions that are going on. These are the three things, but that's not true exactly. Matthew 26, 61, Jesus is walking by the temple and he says that he will destroy the temple and build it back in three days, talking about himself, and that he would ra- rise three days from, later from the grave, showing victory over Satan, sin, and death. So he's referring to himself, not the building, and they were all about the building and they're missing the forest for the trees here. And that Jesus is going to change the customs or change the laws. That's not exactly Matthew 5, 17, Jesus says, he's not going to change a jot or tittle, but he's come to fulfill the customs, fulfill the laws. Jesus is the fulfillment of all the law. So Stephen's preaching Christ from the Old Testament, saying that Jesus' body was the temple that was destroyed, that was raised three three days later, and that Jesus is the fulfillment of all the laws. So Stephen's understanding of the law is completely accurate. They just don't see it. So they're They don't like it either, and so they're telling lies. So these false accusations are given about Stephen, but he's he's telling the exact truth, and he's interpreting the Old Testament correctly, and they're not. They're misinterpreting it. And we're going to see some awesomeness at the very end that God does. It's just, it's awesome. So the fifth one, the fifth thing is that Stephen is engaged in the mission. So much so, he doesn't shrink back. He stays on mission. He doesn't soften the message He disputes with them because he's not going to soften the message so that they'll like him. He wants them to know Jesus. Not some fake Jesus, not some soft Jesus, not some version of Jesus that's palatable for them. Jesus. He's engaged in mission. Are we doing that? Are we engaging in mission? Not softening it, not changing it, not running in fear, but presenting Christ winsomely. We're full of grace. We want to be kind. We want to extend the same grace that's been extended to us, but still engaged in the mission. Here's what happens when he's engaged in the mission. This sixth characteristic should give us great encouragement. If you feel like you are going to do it all wrong, this sixth characteristic should give you great encouragement. Verse 10, they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit by which he was speaking. He had, the sixth characteristic, incredible wisdom. He had incredible wisdom. Whenever he was speaking to them, his arguments, his thoughts were so coherent that they couldn't follow. They would get to the place where they would say, it's going to come up in just a second, number six, I promise you. Incredible wisdom is the sixth one. It says this. We have, basically, after they hear him, uh, they couldn't respond to his arguments. So instead, whenever one commentator said, when you can't meet good arguments back with good arguments, you just reach over into the mud and lie. That's what they did. They couldn't, they couldn't answer him. They found themselves saying things in their mind and hearts like, we have no idea how to respond to you. 
you are so coherent and so studied and so learned and so smart and you make so much sense. We're not sure what to say next. So we're going to lie and say that you're just saying things wrong because you make so much sense. He had incredible wisdom. So when you're looking at this and you're like, you know, there's not this big long history of Stephen and how he came up into this awesome figure. How is it that this guy Stephen is so wise? Where does this relative nobody come from out of nowhere just seven verses ago and all of a sudden confound people with his wisdom? Was it the seminary? No, it wasn't the seminary. They didn't have those. What was it? Like, what, how was he so smart? As we know, Luke wrote Acts and Luke. There's no hint, like, guess on that one. But in Luke chapter 21, uh, verse 15, there's a promise made from Jesus to all Christians. So this isn't just Stephen and how he gets his wisdom, but every single one of you. Luke chapter 21, we'll do 14 and 15. This is a promise of how Stephen has his wisdom and for us, 14 and 15. Sell it therefore in your minds, not to meditate before how, beforehand how to answer for, oh, this is so beautiful. If you don't feel like you can do the engagement in the mission, here's a great, great, great promise for you and a great encouragement. For I will give you a mouth and wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. The promise of Jesus coming to fruition in the life of Stephen and this sixth characteristic. He was full of wisdom because Jesus promised him. He didn't have seminary. But he was a man full of the Spirit, abiding in the Spirit, living in the Word, trusting in the promises of Christ, dwelling um, with Christ, being with Christ. We can do that through his Word. And so because of that, with this, that coupled with the promise of wisdom, you have a man, as it says in verse 10, they couldn't withstand the wisdom and the Spirit which with he was speaking. It was the work of and promise of Jesus that made him have incredible wisdom. <clears throat> this wisdom that he had, as I said, is from Jesus. And we can have that as well by abiding in Christ, seeking him in his word. As we grow in the knowledge of him and study him and learn about him and know him and trust in the gospel and seek him in his word daily, not, not weekly, not at, just on Sundays when I preach, or whoever preaches and just don't do anything the rest of the week, but daily, coupled with this amazing promise, hey, I'm, I'm going to give you wisdom. Then you are able to have incredible wisdom and engage in the mission far more deeper than you can imagine. So here's the thing. Here's where I'm going to say I didn't break the seminary rule. Here's, here's the twist at the end, if you will. These six characteristics, Jesus had every single one of them. So I've been pointing you to Stephen. Hey, be like Stephen. You can kill that now. Be like Christ. All that was happening was that Jesus had these exact things said of him. And I'm going to just use Luke and Acts. Just use Luke and Acts. Now, full of faith, Jesus, that's a little weird that Jesus would be full of faith of himself. But the rest, listen to this. Luke chapter four, verse one, Jesus is full of the Holy Spirit. Luke chapter four, verse 22, Jesus is full of grace. Acts chapter two, verse 22, Jesus is said to have been full of power doing great signs and wonders. He was full of power. Acts, I'm sorry, Luke chapter 19, verse 10, Jesus is engaged in the mission by coming to seek and save the lost. Luke chapter 2, 52, it says he grew in wisdom. And then John 7 and Matthew 7, I did cheat right there. No one else was able to speak with wisdom and authority like he did. He was full of wisdom. So, hence, this sermon is not about Stephen at all because Stephen was Christ-like. 
These things are Christ's characteristics. Stephen's life reflected Jesus. The gospel had so affected him that he was reflecting Christ's character as he lived. Because of the right standing he had with God, he understood he was free now to pursue these things. And as he did, he reflected these things as he lived his life. He was Christ-like. So that's what we're called to. Have you also, has the gospel affected you in such a way that you're reflecting Christ's character? The, good, the gospel, the good news is that these characteristics are not things that you must attain to during your life in order for you to have a right standing with God. That's not the gospel. The gospel is that Jesus loves you more than you could ever imagine. He's forgiven you far more than you could ever conceive. And if you're in Christ, you're now free to live having these things present in your life. Well, here's the conclusion. Here's where you know, like last week in verse, verse 7, where it's kind of like these things, these temptations to get off mission were coming. One was the priests and one was the social ministry. And at the very end of the social ministry, Jesus said, you know that previous thing that was keeping you off mission, the priests? Guess what? They're going to get saved. I'm just going to save them just to show you how awesome I am. Like, there's another one of these things that are happening here. God, Luke and God, I should say, God through Luke is going to write something just to like, if you, if you read it real fast, you might not see it, just to show you how awesome God is. And that he's saying, no, Hellenist, Friedman, people that are putting these wrong accusations on Stephen, um, he does have the right interpretation of the law. Verse 15. And gazing at him, Stephen, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. So you read that, you're like, what? What is that? Does that have anything to do with anything? Who knows what angels look like? How can Luke write that? Well, it's not so much about the angel as it's about the face. Luke has told us of all things that this man who mirrors Jesus and strives to reflect Jesus in everything that he's done as he lived his life, one of the charges made against him was that he had blasphemed against the temple, the holy place, and the law. Which is crazy. We've already said he had the right understanding. He had the wrong understanding. So Luke, as the writer, by the power of the Holy Spirit, God is going to do something. Luke is going to do something intentionally breathtaking. Intentionally breathtaking to help us see God saying, Stephen was right. Something similar like this has happened before. Where in Exodus chapter 34, Moses and when you talk about Moses, in anywhere in the, in the New Testament, anytime Moses is mentioned, he's always equated with the law. Anytime Moses is ever mentioned in the New Testament, it's just equating of law. And so here's what happens to Moses, who represents the law. Something happens to his face as he is coming down. Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets. What's in his hand? The law. As he, as he had been on the mountain with God, he has these two tablets in his hand, and he came down. Um, Moses did not know that. Here it is. The skin of his face was shining because he had been talking with God. Aaron and all the people saw it, of Israel saw Moses, and behold, the skin of his face was shining, and they were afraid to come near him. But Moses called to them, and Aaron and all the leaders of the congregation turned to him, and Moses talked with them. Afterward, all the people of Israel came near, and he commanded them that all the Lord had spoken with them on that the Lord had spoken with him on Mount Sinai. And when Moses had finished speaking with them, he put a veil over his face. His face 
something happened is so bright he had to put a veil. And whenever Moses went in before the Lord to speak to them, he would remove the veil. And when he came out, he would uh, come out and, and told the people of Israel what God commanded. The people of Israel would see that the face of Moses, that the skin of Moses' face was shining. And Moses would put the veil over his face again whenever he would speak with them. They were scared. They didn't even know what to do. Like you're, you're being with God scaring us. Um, something similar has happened. And it just so happens that it had related with Moses. So Luke here, in a lot of ways, is trying to say, Stephen is like a second Moses, if you will. Something's also happening with his face. It is that his face was like the face of an angel. Stephen is being accused of showing disrespect or a misunderstanding of the law of Moses. And God here, through Luke, saying that his face was like the face of an angel, God is showing his approval of Stephen's interpretation. It's not blasphemy, but instead it's actually right. And he's going to show them he was right by making his face have the face of an angel. And I'm assuming that means shine in some way. When Stephen was alive, he was preaching Christ. He was preaching Christ as the only one from the Old Testament that was foreshadowed and fulfilled. And he was preaching that Christ's body was the temple that would be broken down and resurrected in three days. And that Christ was the fulfillment of the law. And so he had the interpretation correct and God's wanting everybody to understand. I mean, it's just like God saying right before everybody, I'm gonna do something just to mess with all of you, just to let you know he was right the whole time. And now we're gonna go into his sermon next, next week um, in chapter seven. But before we do, I wanna say this. Stephen was a man full of faith and grace in the Holy Spirit and he spent his time in the presence of Jesus and this affected the way that he lived. He lived boldly, he preached Christ and he loved his fellow man. And at the very end of his time where he's given his last sermon, his face is shining like the face of an angel showing that the Lord did say, yes, he has my approval. Yes, he is actually right. Stephen was, like I said, like I said before, a second Moses who literally lived out, literally lived out 2 Corinthians 3.18 right at the close of his life, which says, which this is true of all of us now. 2 Corinthians 3.18, Paul's, Referencing that verse I just read, saying that just like Moses uh, with unveiled face would go before the Lord, we, all of us, can now go with unveiled face before the presence of the Lord. And as we behold the glory of the Lord, it changes us, our characteristics, to be more Christ-like. As we behold, we become more Christ-like. Stephen is literally having that happen, and his face is showing it. And we all, with unveiled face, 2 Corinthians 3.18, and we all... With unveiled face, now face shining, beholding the glory of the Lord, whenever that's happening, we've been justified, but now we're being sanctified, or we are now being transformed into the same image, or gaining the characteristics of Christ, full of grace, full of faith, full of the Holy Spirit, full of power, from one degree of glory to, the, for, to another, for this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. He's literally, in his closing moments, living out, like, for real, 2 Corinthians 3, not in a figurative sense, in a literal sense, 2 Corinthians 3.18. That's unbelievable because of the gospel. All of us have the ability to be transformed into Christ's likeness as we behold his glory, like Stephen. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for the this good news that transforms us because we have been justified, because we have been redeemed, because we have been forgiven. It transforms us 
to be made into your image, formed into your character from one degree of glory to the next. What a beautiful truth. We're so thankful. I pray now, Lord, as we go into the Lord's Supper and we observe and remember what you've done for us on the cross, that as we do this, Lord, that we would have the gospel preached to us. Not just with words, but tangibly as we hold the bread, tangibly as we hold the cup, that you would proclaim the gospel to us. Because the gospel is not just a message for unbelievers. It's a continual message for believers to preach to themselves, to be reminded of what you've done and that we always have right standing because of Christ. And because of that, we can behold your glory and be transformed into your image. We love you, Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.